South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And a very good morning. A beautiful Sunday morning right here in South Texas. Uh, another August morning that... Golly, is it just amazing? It's hotter in the northwest part of the country than it is here in the sunny south. And, uh, boy, if the humidity would just go down, we wouldn't have anything to complain about. Of course, uh, the rain that they were suggesting didn't materialize yesterday or last night. Maybe it will today. We can certainly use a little bit more of it. But overall, mornings are absolutely wonderful for getting out gardening and all those fun outdoor things uh, that you love to do. Afternoons are a good time for napping and <laughs> getting other things done. And then the evening time comes around, and once again, it's uh, pretty pleasant to be outside working in the vegetable garden, working with, uh, gosh, your house plants, setting out more good plants to have color for the fall, maybe putting out some fertilizer, maybe putting out some beneficial nematodes for those fleas that seem to keep hanging around and all the fire ants. Whatever it is that you've got going on outside, uh, give me a call if you'd like to talk about it or you have questions about it or anything pretty much related to nature and the out of doors. Uh, you know the number, and like I say, David and Shirley and Ross are all ahead of you, but you can maybe grab that last line at 210-599-5555. And I just hate keeping people waiting, so why don't we just get started with the phone calls, and first up would be David. Good morning, David. Morning, Bob. <laughs> Good morning. Trying to help a neighbor in Utopia put in a couple of food flights this year. So far, I've turned it off soil over. It's a uh, Sabinel River bottom soil. I don't know how yes, else sir. to describe it. Okay. Uh, looking at a chart, and we're going to put oats in. And what is the best time? I got a couple questions. I'll shoot them both at you. When sure. is the best time to put those oats out? And we were thinking about fertilizing at the same time with something like growing green. Does that sound like a plan? That sounds like a plan. Uh, of course, you can't put the oats and the growing green in the same uh, spreader, in the same hopper, so to speak. Uh, there would be nothing wrong if I were doing it and if the time were available. I'd go ahead and uh, you know put your growing green out a little ahead of when you're going to put your oats out because it goes to work with the microbes in the soil. The microbes go to work converting uh, that nutrient that is in that pasteurized poultry litter and really getting it ready for the plants. And this is what I do in my own vegetable garden and things. I will actually put my fertilizer out in the vegetable garden. I'll put a little compost along with it. And I try to get that done any from time from two to four weeks before I'm actually ready to put the vegetables out. And it seems like things just jump out of the ground. And because the growing green is uh, in what we call the cation state. It's not going to wash away. It's not going to volatilize. Uh, it's going to be there, and uh, and especially if we get a little rain on it, it'll really start getting that soil ready for your seed. Uh, but it's up to you. You can put them out at the same time if you like, but if you're just, uh, if you're just anxious to get out and get things done, uh, nothing at all wrong with putting on the fertilizer in advance. As far as planting oats, we normally do it just as the weather begins to cool off. Uh, on a typical year, I never use the word normal because it just doesn't occur in Texas. Typical year, early to mid-October is going to be your best time uh, to get your oats out. And then you just pray for some rain. The, the worst thing that can happen is to plant your seed, get some rain, and then have it just suddenly turn off dry. Um, but hopefully by the time we get into October, we are 
into a period when we typically get a little bit more rainfall. So uh, that's that's just the time that I aim at. Uh, actually, any time probably between September 15th and, uh, oh gosh, the middle of November is going to work just fine. But in, an, in a typical, in an average year, I think you'll find uh, the first two weeks of October are going to be the ideal time. On the fertilizer, we go with the recommended setting, uh, what is it, 5,000 square feet? Uh, for a bag on the growing um, It is. How large an area are you doing? There's two plots in total of three-eighths of an acre. Okay. Um, in, you know, their three-eighths of an acre is going to come to roughly 15,000 square feet. So on that size ground, yes, buy it by the bag. Uh, if you get the good results that I'm almost certain that you will and you have other people get interested in it, uh, Medina will happily sell you that fertilizer in a tote, either a 1,000-pound or a 2,000-pound tote, and uh, you save a lot of money because they don't have to go through the bagging process and all. Uh, you do have to have a dry place to store it. It does keep quite well if you have a dry barn, barn or something to store it in. But starting out on uh, an area this size, yeah, probably uh, you're looking at three to four bags of fertilizer. But, uh, again, if this project grows and expands, uh, you can save some money, and uh, <laughs> you can use it over a lot lot of other areas. But, uh, yeah, that's that's exactly what I would do. Okay, now on the oats, I, I found a couple of charts, and uh, they're leaning towards 100 pounds on the acre. Uh, not knowing anything about oat seed, that seems kind of thin, doesn't it? Um, yeah, that's a little thin. Um, I tell you, a little bit depends on the oat variety. There are some, if you want the best of the best, you want what are called forage oats. You're not interested in oats that, you know, actually produce something that you can make oatmeal out of. And uh, your forage oats are selective varieties that are grown for the amount of, uh, obviously, foliage, uh, edible uh, things that they produce. So you might, uh, you might call, uh, Dean Williams over at Douglas King Seed here in San Antonio and ask Dean what his recommended variety is and what his recommended application rate. He's going to have a wider selection that you're going to find at your average feed store. Now, that's not to say that you don't have somebody in your area up around Utopia that is pretty knowledgeable about things, but, um, uh, it is uh, one name that I hear talked about a lot is one called Plot Spike, uh, but uh, there there are a number of varieties. But just keep in mind that what you're looking for is forage, not oat production. You'll get a lot more growth over a much longer period of time with forage oats, and that's what you're looking for if you're growing them for food plots. Great, Bob. Thanks. Appreciate the info, and keep up the good work, and have a oh. nice day. Well, you do the same. Let me ask you one more question. Um, sure. Are are these fields fenced to where you can keep the deer out? No. Okay. Um, what you're going to what you're going to be dealing with now? This has been a pretty good year so far, and the deer have had lots of browse. But if it dries off, if we don't get rain going into the fall. Those deer are going to want to nibble those oats down to ground level as soon as they sprout. If you find a way to encourage them to stay away, whether it's just physically running them off or whether it's putting up uh, 
Uh, Parks and Wildlife has come up with a pretty good system for using a, a three-wire electric fence system. And with three-eighths of an acre, you're not looking at a very big area. But the ideal thing would be able to exclude the deer while the uh, while the oats are getting up and established, and then opening it opening it up for grazing, because most of the hill country we have way 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 too many deer, and they're going to keep that eaten down to the ground. It's kind of like rotational grazing. Uh, what we like to do when we're grazing cattle or horses or whatever else, it's nice to have several smaller paddocks, and we let the animals graze one area and then move them to the next while the first one regrows. Uh, that doesn't happen when you just got open land and uh, if the deer are overpopulated and hungry they're going to keep that field eaten down so long term if you're really looking to do something sustainable uh, it would be nice to uh, to be able to exclude the deer while your oats were getting started Um, and you know there are other things you could do but that that would sure help your oats come up and get started because they're going to be out there and remember that a whitetails which is i presume what you're what you're aiming at uh providing nutrition for they can't bite something off cleanly they have to rip it off that's why they get into people's landscapes and i hear people say they pulled all my plants up out of the ground they weren't trying to pull the plants up out of the ground but if they're not well rooted they're just, you know, getting it in their teeth and then they're moving their head to the side just to rip off what they want to uh, chew and swallow. So especially when your oats are first coming up, uh, having the deer grazing on them can be pretty destructive. So uh, again, you know, the old days when I used to plant oat plots uh, on my ranch uh, specifically for the deer, I didn't do any of those things, but I've learned a lot since then. And if I went back to it, I'd, I'd try to try to do it a little bit better so that's just information you can do with it what you like but i hope it's useful to you oh and it certainly has been bob thanks uh i just learned a lot in the last five minutes or so <laughs> i appreciate it <laughs> well you enjoy your process out there thank you david have a good day. appreciate it Goodbye. you too bye all right shirley's up next good morning shirley good morning good morning uh, I have a problem with Wiesatch mesquite and Johnson grass. Okay. It's growing on a fence that is across the street from houses. Uh-huh. And we have been um, weed-eating it, shredding it, but that's, you know, that's almost a weekly thing. Yes, ma'am. Is there anything you can put on that that you don't have to worry about it drifting off to a neighbor's landscape? Well, you know, the uh, um, I am not a fan of the brush killers and things like that. They simply go places you're not supposed to and kill things you don't want to kill. You can certainly burn the tops all of those, off all of those things with your simple mixture of uh, strong vinegar and orange oil. And um, you do have to reapply periodically because, uh, you know, even Roundup doesn't kill the roots of things. So uh, it's a safer and better way to do it. And as long as you're spraying on a calm day, you're going to have not have any drift to worry about. I can't imagine it, you know, even making it over a road. If it did get on something, uh, all it's going to do is uh, give do some damage to the top. So um, Johnson grass, just shredding it down repeatedly will kill it. If you keep it from making a top, either by physically weed-eating it or, or by spraying it, Johnson grass will die out. Mesquite and wheat satch are... 
you know, a much tougher problem. And what you may end up doing if you have uh, little trees of any size, and this is not organic, but it's close enough to organic that I don't object to it. But at some point, just one by one, go in and cut them to the ground and pour, you know, just some diesel over the stump that you've created. How much will depend on how big the tree you've cut back is. Uh, the diesel kills. Uh, the microbes in the soil clean it up. They actually turn it into a fertilizer-like product. So not something I'm going to recommend you do in your front yard, but along a fence line, and I do the same thing on my ranch where I've, uh, you know, got mesquite and things coming up, cut it down to ground level and douse that stump with some diesel. I go back and follow it up a week later with some molasses, either liquid or dry, to speed up the microbes that are going to break it down. But that's what long-term you're probably going to have to do on the brushy stuff. Uh, in the meantime, just keep burning the foliage off of it with your mixture of a gallon of strong vinegar, two ounces of orange oil, and just a little bit of molasses mixed into it. Uh, that's going to that's gonna knock the foliage off in 20 minutes. It works very, very quickly. But uh, at least for a little while, things are going to re-sprout. The Johnson grass will die out if you keep it from making a top on it. But the Weesatch and Mesquite are the nightmare of most people across South Texas. But you can kill it effectively and safely just, uh, you know, pouring a bit of uh, diesel. And like I say, the amount depends on the size of the stump. And that will kill it completely and it will not come back. Good. I have another question. Okay. We have a, uh, a dog pen where we have three labs in. Uh-huh. I've got two labs at my feet right now. <laughs> In the back part of it, we have uh, poison ivy that's coming up. Mm-hmm. What what does the, the orange oil and vinegar work on the poison ivy? Yes, it does. It works very well and very quickly. Now, poison ivy is a woody plant. It has its roots down into the ground, and you will have to spray more than once. But it will knock the top of it off of it. You know, very very quickly, it will kill it off. And um, what I do, and I've got some of it right at my gate going into my ranch, but uh, if, it's a, if it's a big area, I will go ahead and, you know, if it's a big vine, I'll go ahead and cut it off at the ground so that I don't have to spray a huge amount, and then I will spray the foliage as it starts to come out. Now, remember, if you're handling it, uh, wear plastic gloves. Do not wear leather gloves because the toxin will get into the leather and you'll end up throwing the gloves away. But if you're wearing like a heavy-duty dishwashing glove or, you know, you can uh, probably at a farm and ranch store, you may even be able to get a heavier-duty glove designed for handing, handling chemicals. That way you can just wash the sap of the poison ivy off. You know, if you do choose to pull the vines and do something else with them, do not burn them because the smoke is very poisonous, very hard on your lungs. So that stuff that needs to go onto the compost pile or go somewhere else. But if it's just a relatively small amount sprouting up, just spray with your vinegar, orange oil, molasses mix. Uh, if there are big vines growing up the fence or something, I would cut them off at ground level, and then the top is going to die naturally, and just anything sprouts out from the base. I'd go after that with my uh, vinegar, orange oil mix. Okay, and I have been calling you through the last year or two about my Monterey oaks. Yes. That I have been trying to nurse back to help. And One how are they doing? Well, one of them just gave up the ghost. But the strange thing is, when I had it taken out, the roots had never come out of the ball. Mm, uh-huh. The roots had just not spread. 
The other one is kind of limping along, and I'm spraying it ever so often with has to grow and uh, oh, what's the other one? Um, that uh, super thrive, super, super thrive, thrive or uh, Garrett juice? Yeah, yeah. uh huh. No, super thrive around it ever so often, and it's hanging in there, but it it ain't doing real good. Well, as the weather cools down, it should do better. Now, how how long have they been planted, and how how big a container did they originally come out of? I think a five-gallon container. Okay, okay. And they've been in the ground, I would say, a year and a half, two years. Okay. I would think about, you know, going out, you know, a few inches, uh, if it's in a five-gallon container, go out about six inches from the trunk and take a shovel, a sharp shovel. My grandfather used to call it a bilduki or a sharpshooter or, you know, it's just it's a long, narrow shovel and just cut straight down into the ground because if you if the root ball has never expanded it may have just kind of gotten overgrown in the pot and those roots are just going round and round and round sometime over the winter months if you will go on opposite sides of the tree and just cut down to where you would be severing any roots that would be circling that will get those roots branching that will get those roots spreading more quickly into the surrounding soil and this is a good thing to do if you plant any more trees we generally recommend when you take them out of the container take a strong uh, sharp knife short bladed knife like a sheetrock knife or something like that and just score down one or two sides of the root ball just to encourage those roots to be growing outwards instead of just going round and around and around like they were trying to in the in the pot well i bought these trees from a nursery uh-huh. and the man came and planted them for me and when well, he, he probably did them, do it right no, he did not, and I tried to tell him that. I tried to say, Bob Webster says, well, no, you know, he wouldn't listen to me. He not only right. didn't, didn't cut the roots, he planted them too deeply. But That's not surprising. <laughs> anyway, I'm the one that suffered from it. Well, but I'm you're doing this one to hang on, Bob. Uh, well, you're, you're, you're my go-to man whenever I have a worry about a plant. Well, I'm, it's a pleasure to be here for you, and uh, you keep up what you're doing. Uh, after the weather cools off and it's less stressful, I would think about scoring down the side. I told a, a gentleman yesterday that, uh, you know, on a tree that had been very recently planted from a bigger, like a 30-gallon container or something, just to dig a little hole adjacent to the root ball where he could just reach down in and just score up the side of the root ball. In your case, since they've been in a year and a half, I think uh, get somebody with enough, uh, I won't call it fat, I'll call it body mass. <laughs> There's a nice word for almost everything out there, but enough enough body mass to be able to just go straight down into the ground with that shovel and cut any circling and girdling roots. And uh, long term, that will most definitely help. And um, you just call me anytime we've got a little issue we can try to solve. Okay. Thank you very much, and have a good day. You do the same, Shirley. Appreciate the call. All right, let's get a break done, and Ross goodbye. Ross will be up next. I get to talk to you about Phoenix Nursery and Garden Center. They don't come out and plant, but they certainly have good trees and other things, and they will give you correct, you know, 
accurate information about how to do it. Fanix has been there for over 80 years. Started by old Grandpa Eddie Fanix. Had the pleasure of visiting at some length with Mark and Mike at a trade show uh, this past week. And it's just always fun to uh, to get together and, and talk about the industry. And people ask me, why do you advertise for your competitors? And I say, they're not competitors. They're just good friends in the same business. And I have no hesitation sending you to Fanix. They've been around, like I say, for over 80 years. They specialize in fruit trees. They specialize in roses. They specialize in crepe myrtles. And, of course, they have all the organic materials we talk about uh, from the fertilizers and the mulches and the compost. And they also want me to remind you about their great lithium-ion battery-powered equipment called Ego. And CBS Energy has this uh, program they call Mow Down Smog, which uh, encourages people to use battery-powered equipment. Now, that program ends the end of August, but you can get up to a $60 rebate on the kind of things that they have over at Phoenix. So it's one more reason to get over and see them. Check out the Traeger pellet grills and check out everything that's coming in for fall gardening. Phoenix over on Home Green Road, right where they've been for over 80 years. If you want to check them out online, it's Phoenix, F-A-N-I-C-K, PhoenixNursery.com. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, next couple of callers are going to be Ross and Hank. Actually, have a couple of open lines. It doesn't happen very often on Sunday mornings, so uh, if you've been getting a busy signal, it'll be a real good time to dial 210-599-5555 while I say good morning, Ross. How you doing, Bob? I'm good. How about yourself? How you <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> it's just it's just a not so hot summer. So other than having too much to do, which has just been the story of my life for all these years, uh, it's it's a nice Sunday morning out there. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, I missed you at the trade show Saturday. I didn't know if you were there that day. Well, we had planned to go and then had a couple of people call in sick, but, you know, TNLA's gotten to be pretty worthless. So we did Adam's trade show on Wednesday and probably found more there than they would have found at the TNLA show, but that's a whole other story. Did you find anything interesting? Yeah, and very disappointing, too. Um, the citrus growers, was it Saxon and Bechel? Be- Saxon and Bechtel? Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. They're now putting out uh, GMO avocados. Well, what can I say? You know, it's uh, we don't have to buy them. They can grow them, and it's, it's up to us. If we say no to that kind of thing, they'll stop growing them and, you know, grow the kind of things that we approve of a little bit more, but uh, it's the the power of the almighty dollar. And it's it's interesting. You know, I was talking to uh, the manager of the HEB up in Bernie where I shop a good deal and thanking him and congratulating for the amount of organic produce he had on the shelves. And he said, uh, thank yourself. He said, they, the company will let me buy anything that people buy. So you can determine what people you know, are going to do by what we choose to buy or not buy. So let's just hope that people will say no to genetically modified avocados and uh, uh, they'll go back to producing what sells better for them. But, yeah, it's uh, the temptation of the almighty dollar is certainly strong. Yeah, it was um, yeah, the Saxon Bundle. And uh, there, there was another one. There's a Hopkins nursery. They're out of Florida. And mm-hmm. they were selling them, too, the exact same one. It's called the Super Haas. Uh huh. So I asked, I asked the spokesman there. So what's what's the new thing about it? He says, well, 
it's been genetically modified to withstand colder temperatures. It's cold hardy down to 20 degrees. Well, they can do that by simply getting some through natural hybridizing, getting the genes of some of uh, the what we call the Mexican uh, avocados in there. And, um, you know, once again, it's just uh, this CRISPR technology has just made it possible for people to do all sorts of things that are unwise. But as long as people go on buying it and not paying any attention to the long-term consequences of it, um greed will set in and uh they will grow whatever they can sell the most of so uh, i can't say it surprises me at all but uh i can tell you that um that those of us who want to see a change can have at least some influence so uh, uh we just should say no to them yeah you yeah. uh, well, was asking them and i have a lila and i uh-huh. bought it this past spring uh whenever they started warming up uh-huh. And I've had it in the same pot, and I had it. We have grasshoppers real bad out here right now. Not as bad. Yeah, as we do too. And uh, I had it in a closed-in tent, you know, mosquito netting. Uh-huh. Um, still got bright shade, you know, morning and afternoon sun. Kept it watered. It's doing great. And we started getting rain again. I brought it back outside, and it immediately just started turning brown. Uh, the leaves just desiccated and started dropping off. Now the all the limbs are turning brown and going all the way down to the down to the roots and i said okay what did i do wrong now and so i pulled it out make sure the the drain holes weren't plugged up and they weren't so i went Mm -hmm. ahead and repotted it fresh potting soil and didn't have any effect on it it just withering up well, you know, there, uh, there are numerous things. There are some bacterial root rots that can get avocados. Um, and, of course, uh, with the, we've had, and especially you guys over towards Seguin, had lots and lots of uh, good rains. But when you get so much water that it drives the oxygen out of the soil, the roots deteriorate. And avocados are one of those trees that just demand perfect drainage. And uh, I've seen, you know, I've seen a fair amount of that. And uh, plus there was, you know, there on a lot of things, there's been some just lingering cold damage that uh, we didn't see early on when the temperatures were milder but we still have plants folding up and dying from uh, damage that was done back in February and that damage didn't show up as long as the weather was very moderate but then when we got into stressful weather when the compensation point went way up uh, those poor plants just couldn't you know couldn't handle it and we're seeing it in everything from uh, Oh, loquats to uh, a few other trees to, you know, some of the uh, citrus and even some of the avocados. It just, uh, even though they didn't show the damage early on, once the weather turned stressful, um, we, we've seen a number of things, you know, like that happen. So be hard to say without seeing, but um, if you uh, if you plant another one, I very definitely would use fresh soil. I would you know rinse your containers with hydrogen peroxide or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the Adams Trade Show, I was looking at a couple of new products that I'll be telling you more about that are based around Bacillus subtilis and some of the natural things that work very well against uh, many of the root-borne pathogens uh, from Phytophthora to Pythium to several others. 
and uh, are showing real promise, you know, as a drench. And on things that are susceptible to some of those problems, we'll probably start recommending it preemptively, you know, when we plant, like I say, without seeing. But uh, avocados, I believe it's pythium that sometimes gets them. So uh, mm-hmm. um, you might talk to your Adams rep about uh, that. And like I say, this uh, this stuff is... I don't know if it's certified organic, but being built around uh, things like uh, uh, BA, as they call it, as opposed to BT, the Bacillus aureus, that uh, um, is a natural fungus uh, deterrent and to some degree bacterial as well. So there are other things out there, but you know, it's uh, it, it you know it's, it's hard to say exactly what got it, Ross. But bottom line is, you probably need to plant another one. And I know you're not yeah. going to plant one of those super joeys or super, you know, super hoss or whatever it is. And yeah. uh, we just need to do what you do in telling your friends, and I'll do what I do telling my fifty thousand or so friends on Saturday and Sunday mornings. You've <laughs> just helped with that. Okay. Well, I guess I'll have to give it another try. Give it a shot and uh, keep in touch, and it's always good to hear from you. Uh, Let me get a break. Thank you, sir. Let's get a break done here. Hank will be up next, but I get to talk to you about Green Grow Organics, Sam Sitterly. That's the kind of thing that Sam specializes in is maintaining soil health, keeping the pathogens out, keeping the good guys in. And when you get your life right in the soil, you get your roots and your plants doing well, and then you've got beautiful plants, and uh, you're not just treating symptoms all the time when that occasional problem does show up. Sam's been doing this to help people for about 30 years now, over 30 years, and uh, his company is called Green Grow Organics. Everything he does is organic, involves very simple products most of the time, things you may even have around the house. But uh, if you would like someone that will work with you on your landscape, will teach you and will actually do, you know, some of the things that need to be done when it comes to fertilizing, compost tea application, treatment for various problems, that's what his specialty is. Go to the website, Green Grow, spelled out G-R-O-W, GreenGrowOrganics.com. And uh, if it looks right for you, give them a call. Be sure you understand any charges and fees and things like that. But uh have an awful lot of people that are really pleased with how their landscapes look once Sam started helping them with them. Once again, he is Sam Sitterly. His company is Green Grow Organics. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening, and uh, just a nice Sunday morning out there. I sure hope you're going to get out and enjoy it if you're not already doing so. We're going to talk to Hank and Ted and Tricia. Hank's up first. Uh, good morning, Hank. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. I hope my phone has one. It seems to be I'm losing uh, reception. I'm out. I'm up there in the morning. Anyway. Yeah. Okay, um, I'm not getting, uh, you're not coming through real well. Uh, repeat that one more time, please. Okay, uh, get out in the open, get away from metal roofs, and uh, and call back when you can uh, when you get away from that interference, Hank. I'd love to talk to you, but right now let's go ahead and uh, see how Ted's doing. Good morning, Ted. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh, I'm uh, looking for... Uh uh, what kind of flowers or uh, small plant or shrub I can uh, put out uh, to attract hummingbirds? Uh, ideally, uh, 
be, you know, either in pots on the edge of my patio, which uh, doesn't get any direct sun until after about 3 or 4 p.m. Okay. Uh, and uh, the only area available for planting is uh, somewhat shaded by a tree and uh, probably get some direct sunlight uh, uh, during the day as the sun moves around, but, you know, it's quite a bit of uh, shade there. Okay. Well, you know, of course, um, there there are more things growing in the sun than there are that grow in the shade. Hummingbirds prefer bright colors and tubular flowers wherever possible. And probably the things that uh, that are going to do well for you as far as attracting hummingbirds and growing easily, uh, there are a bunch of salvias. The genus salvia probably has two, three hundred different species, many of which grow in the sun, but a few of which grow in shadier areas. Uh, there is a salvia called salvia coccinea, which is known as tropical sage, or sometimes you'll see it is sold as forest fire or lady in red. But it is a, uh, it's a sage that uh, has bright red tubular flowers, grows beautifully in the shade. It freezes down in the winter, but it typically comes back. It also makes seed that it comes back from. Uh, there's a red form, a pink form, and a white form. The red form is most attractive to the hummingbirds, and uh, it pretty much blooms all summer. And uh, my business partner planted it around her place years ago, and now she's got just uh, you know a lot of it coming up out in shady areas underneath the oaks. And we see hummingbirds, uh, you know, around it all the time. There's another salvia called eyelash sage. Uh, there's another salvia called smoothleaf sage. And uh, those are a couple of other ones that uh, have a little bit larger flower. Also perennial, they may freeze down in a cold winter. They'll be evergreen in a mild winter, but they typically come back very, very well. So those are three of the shade-loving red salvias that would do. There is another plant uh, that is called odontonema, or fire spike, not to be confused with fire bush, which is a sun lover, but fire spike uh, is a plant, beautiful green foliage plant that grows in the shade. It only blooms in the fall, but uh, there's a red form and a pink form. The red form is the much more common of the two, but it puts up a tall spike of flowers. That flower spike may be six, eight inches tall and may have, you know, 20, 30 flowers on one spike. But it also has that tubular red flower that the hummingbirds love. Uh, it's a perennial that uh, is both an attractive plant and puts out lots of colorful flowers that are, you know, great for the hummingbirds. So, uh, uh, again, the only disadvantage on that one is it doesn't bloom year-round like the salvias do, but it is sure pretty in the fall. You would enjoy it, and any of the hummingbirds that... Uh, we have a few species of hummingbirds, like the rufus, that sometimes overwinter. Apparently, some of our hummingbirds that have been here for the summer are already heading south with the hotter, drier weather, but we're still going to have those migrating hummingbirds that come through over the next couple of months. So uh, uh, plant whenever whenever you can. In all honesty, planting this time of year, you're going to have more influence on next season's hummingbirds than necessarily on the ones that are here now. But uh, those are four things that, uh, 
you could plant this time of year and they would do well. Now, in the spring, you can also plant uh, impatiens. It's amazing uh, how the hummingbirds actually go, especially to the red and pink impatiens, but I'm not going to recommend them this time of the year because they don't come back. They typically freeze and have to be replanted each year. But uh, you can set those out next spring in your shady area, and uh, they're bringing lots of hummingbirds to them as well. Okay, and uh, fire spice, is is that uh, something that... uh you plant in the ground or in a pot? Yeah, uh, you can grow it either way. You can grow it either way. Keep in mind when you're thinking about freeze damage, which we all had a lot of last winter, that things raised up in a pot, the pot can freeze solid all the way through. And uh, with things planted in the ground, our ground, you know, even last winter when it was down in the single digits, the ground didn't really freeze. So things are more hardy and come back better if they're planted in the ground. But on the other hand, we normally don't have, you know, really, really cold weather. Typical winter, we don't have more than, uh, you know, half a dozen days when things need to be protected. And even then, uh, the pots are not going to be harmed. But every now and then, we get that year that it goes to teens or even single digits and things up in pots are always going to be worse hurt than the things that are in the ground so uh you do whichever is uh more convenient for ted okay and uh the uh, fire spike uh does the it only blooms flowers uh in the fall but it's green throughout the growing season that's exactly right it flowers when the days are short it has a way of measuring day length and as the days get shorter that's when it you know comes into bloom just like chrysanthemums and poinsettias do if we have a very mild winter and it doesn't freeze back it can certainly bloom again in the spring but uh, if we have a cold enough winter to freeze it back you know it really to any great extent uh, it's just going to come back and be beautiful green um, and by the time it gets up to really being a nice big plant, uh, the days will be longer again, and it will just bite its time until shorter days of fall come around. But uh, if if we'd have a very mild winter, then uh, sometimes it pretty much bloom continuously throughout the winter and up until uh, early summer. Okay. Well, it sounds like some salvia and some fire spike might be a good idea. I think they would be a great idea, but don't forget to put out a hummingbird feeder too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've, got, I've got that out, but I need something to attract them. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, very good. Well, uh, you keep up the good work, keep those hummingbirds happy, and you call me whenever I can answer questions for you. Great. Thank you very much, Bob. It's my pleasure, Ted. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right, let me get a quick break in here, and uh, then we'll get back to phone calls. I get to talk about Dr. Mark Williamson, and once again, I love talking about good people. You know, it just... There are people that just make an impression on your life because they do things the right way. They do things in a kind and caring way, and yet they have great skill in what they do. That's the perfect way to describe Dr. Mark Williamson. He looked at what was happening happening to dentistry, where so much of it is going corporate, where your dentist is allowed to spend X number of minutes with you, and if you need implants or any you know of a wide range of things that may be shipped in from China or somewhere else, Dr. Williamson said, no, that's not the way we do things. We take the time. 
we need with every patient. We get to know the patient. We address them as an individual. We address their dental issues individually. And all the things that we use come from right here in the good old United States. Dr. Williamson is a very, very skilled dentist, a very widely trained dentist. Uh, That's the other thing about new corporate dentistry is they want to send you out to a specialist for everything beyond just a simple filling. Well, Dr. Williamson is that specialist. I mean, he, he knows more about more dental specialties than uh, many of the specialists do, and he can take care of just about any issue you have right there in his office, and that's going to save you time and save you money. Just a good guy to know and an outstanding dentist. Uh, Dr. Mark Williamson is carrying on the Staffel that, or the uh, practice that Dr. Staffel uh, started right there. It's out on Cherry Ridge Drive, easy to find. I think they call that uh, Donner Square or something like that. But uh, if you want to see the way that dentistry should be done, you call Dr. Williamson at 341-2569. That's area code 210-341-2569 for dentistry done the right way with Dr. Mark Williamson and Associates. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening, and let's get back to the phone lines. It's going to be Tricia and Ray and Lois are my next three callers, and Tricia is up first. Good morning, Tricia. Good morning, Bob. I went yesterday to pick up that Super Thrive for my poor tree that needs to be revived. How many times do I put the capsule? You said one capsule to one gallon of water, but how many times do I do that? Oh, do it uh, now, do it again in about two weeks, and then do it again a month after that, and by that time, that plant should have turned the corner. Okay. All right, and that was my only question, because I want to make sure I, do, I don't overdo it. And I want to make well, sure yeah, no, it's, uh, it's you will never overdo it. The only thing it'll hurt if you overdo it is your budget, but uh, it's uh, uh, it's just amazing stuff. And, you know, it, you don't have to wait for a plant to be sick. We, we use it when we're transplanting something, when we're setting out bedding plants. Uh, that, along with little has to grow, just makes the best uh, root starter in the entire world. So uh, okay. I'm glad you've got it, but uh, you're going to find uh hopefully you'll be using it on your healthy plants and you won't have too many unhealthy ones to worry about it'll it'll keep them healthy so uh appreciate you and uh you call me if you have more questions okay thank you so much Bye-bye. thank you trisha goodbye uh ray is up next good morning ray good morning bob morning sir um i frequent uh, the flea market um uh, mostly every sunday very good i bought up I, I I bought a plant, which is a. They said it was a, a tree, and it looks like okay. a plant. But uh, and I, like I said, I'm pretty naive in regards to plants and trees. Uh, well, you're just so, learning. What so, what what's the name of it? Uh, I don't know. She didn't know either. So uh, <laughs> I, I said I'll call Bob to to you know to get me out of this doubt. I don't know what it what it is. But the 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 plant or the tree it gets a a, a big leaf. Uh, okay. Uh, on the in the end, it's like a stem coming out of the okay. part. But and it gets a big leaf in at the end. Okay. And does and, it have any flowers? No. Okay. Um, and is this leaf? Um, 
kind of uh, the thing that comes to mind, there is a type of elephant ear out there. It's properly called an alocasia, but there is one, a new variety called stingray, which has this kind of protuberance that comes out of the middle of the leaf, and it could be that. Um, it could be, it, uh, you know, there are plants, anything in what we call the aeroid family, which includes your peace lily or spathylum, um, they have something that's kind of central to it looks like a leaf, but it's actually basically a flat flower. But uh, if it's a big leaf, if it's green and it has kind of a projection coming out down toward the base, uh, look up stingray alocasia, A-L-O-C-A-S-I-A. And, uh, of course, you know, without seeing it, that's just an educated guess. But it's a, it's a really interesting plant. It's something you can plant in your yard. It's something that grows, you know, in a shady area. Uh, it may freeze back in the winter, but unless it's just a super cold winter, it's probably going to come back out. So look up stingray alocasia, and uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised if that's what it is, Ray. And- South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, back to the gardening on a nice Sunday morning out there. It's uh, just the best time of day. I'm sitting here looking out at uh, just all sorts of beautiful flowers and greenery and uh, Labs at my feet and the kitty cats running around out on the deck. It just doesn't get a whole lot better than that. Of course, I guess a tropical beach would also be fun. But <laughs> just be thankful you're in South Texas and not uh, the parts of the West that are so smoky and burning up or, golly, the areas around the world that just have so many problems. We're just so blessed to live in such a wonderful part of the world around here and, uh, and to be able to garden on a year-round basis. Uh, let's talk about that with uh, Lois and Carol and Vernon. And Lois is up first. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. What can you tell me about Black Death regarding the monarch butterflies? I am not familiar with the term Black Death. Uh, Do you have any idea what it refers to? Well, it refers to, I think, the milkweed plant, and Mm -hmm. the cocoon turns black, and it dies inside there then. The caterpillar does. Um, I have not really experienced that. Um, we see a lot of monarchs on the milkweed. Rarely do they actually make their cocoon. Now, milkweed, you know, most anything with a white sap is going to have some alkaloids in it that can be poisonous to many things, but we find that the majority of the caterpillars, given, you know, the place to do so, will go out and make their, you know, will make their, uh, their cocoon, as it were, chrysalis, whatever you want to call it, elsewhere. And, uh, I guess there could be a problem if they stayed in too close contact to the milkweed, the Asclepius that they feed on. Uh, one of our guys here at Shades of Green absolutely loves, uh, uh, these things, and as the caterpillar approaches a size that will be forming its chrysalis, he takes them, puts them, you know, some of their preferred food in a butterfly hatcher, and they'll build their chrysalis somewhere inside of it, and a couple of weeks later, we're releasing some more monarchs back into the environment. So, yes. I'm, you know, I, that's a problem I'm not familiar with, and I guess it could be an issue if the caterpillars don't have anywhere else to 
you know, go off and, and make their cocoon, their chrysalis, but uh, it's it's something we haven't experienced, and, you know, we keep we keep lots and lots of pots of yeah. the Asclepius uh, for them because it's a very, very popular plant, and like I say, mm-hmm. Jeff uh, is forever collecting caterpillars that will come in, you know, and he'll say, well, I released three more monarchs this morning, or I released yeah. four more monarchs this morning, so they develop totally normally, but again, they're, they're building their chrysalis on something other other than the actual milkweed plant, and that right. may or may not have something to do with it. That's just, uh, um, again, it's not a problem that I've really encountered, and uh, I don't, uh, I, I don't think it's a real problem with anything that the milkweed has done, provided that the uh, that the caterpillars have, you know, somewhere else. And it needs to be a shady spot. It needs to be a place that's uh, protected from wasps and other predators, yeah. and. Um, um, uh, beyond that, uh, it's, it's not been an issue for us. Hmm. Well, the first two cocoons, they it's such a wonderful experience to see the butterflies come out. Oh, it yeah, really absolutely. Is. And uh, so the, the, I have three right now, and they're all turning black, and I looked it up on the Internet, and it says Black Death, and if it turns black, it's died inside. So I just wanted to get your opinion on it. I thank you very much. Well, I will look at that later. We have seen, you know, the the big predators of pretty much all caterpillars are wasps. That's uh-huh. what, you know, that's what they paralyze or actually in this case kill and feed to their developing larvae. And we saw a couple of them early this summer that just didn't look right, and we realized that they had been stung but not killed by those blasted red wasps, which are something that uh, I tolerate the yellow jackets and I tolerate the red black wasps, but that solid red one uh, is so aggressive that uh, given the opportunity, they they don't live long around my garden. But uh, (laughs) we've seen a couple of caterpillars that had been stung by those wasps, which, Mm -hmm. you know, apparently messed them up to where they couldn't make a normal caterpillar and like you said they turned uh they just turned dark and the and the crystals mm-hmm. never really developed so right. uh, that is another possibility but i'll look into it a little bit further and see if we can learn anything else that would help you okay thanks bob enjoy your show i appreciate your call lois thank you mm-hmm. Bye-bye. goodbye all right carol is up next good morning carol Hi, Bob. Hey, my gold lantanas are not looking good. Um, Holes in the leaves, dark spots on the leaves. They're not blooming anymore. What do you think? I think you probably have lace bug, and I think that you probably... You know, the there are people. I don't want to criticize uh, some of the uh, saws people and all by name, but they they promote lantana as such a drought tolerant, problem free plant. Well, it's not drought tolerant if you want it to bloom well and do well. And whenever I see an absolutely gorgeous bed of lantana blooming all summer long, I talk to the people, and they continue to water it, they continue to fertilize it, they continue to, you know, just give it the absolute best of care. You can abandon it, and it will survive, and you'll have holes in the leaves, you'll have black and white spots on the leaves, the buds will form, but will never open into flowers. So most of the time when I see this, and and the the insect they get on them is called lace bugs, and the simple solution to it, if the situation's real bad, cut it out, you know, trim it back and fertilize it to get some new growth coming out. 
But if you'll simply, you know, water a little more frequently, fertilize a little more frequently, you should be able to keep that new gold, which is what the really good yellowing is. It should stay pretty much in full bloom all summer. And uh, like I say, they're drought tolerant, but they're not continuing to bloom and do well unless they're getting pretty good care when it comes to watering and feeding. So I think that's all you're looking at, and I think that should be pretty easily correctable for you, Carol. Oh, okay. I always wondered about these beautiful golds that I see around businesses. <laughs> like, I'm thinking, well, what are they doing? <laughs> they're paying. They're paying somebody whose job it is to come around and give it really, really good care. And uh, you know, I have to give uh, when when I first tried going into business for myself, I was doing plant maintenance, and then my partner joined me, and uh, we were doing plant maintenance like you're describing, and we kept people's plants absolutely beautiful until we were able to open the nursery that we dreamed of. So I can almost promise you a little more fertilizer, a little more water. And like I say, if, if the plants are looking really bad, give them a light haircut, fertilize, and the new growth that comes out should be absolutely beautiful. You should be back in flower, you know, in just a few weeks, and they should go right up to freezing weather for you. Okay, I did give them a haircut. I know I've been bad about uh, feeding them, I have uh, has to grow. It's waiting. I know. So, how often should I water them? Like once a week, heavy or just sporadically? Are they are they in in the ground or in pots? Oh, they're in the ground. They've they've been okay. in the ground for a long time. Okay, keep in mind that there's no such thing as too much water at one time, but there is too often. You want to water super thoroughly when you water to saturate that entire root system and throw away these so-called moisture meters. They don't even measure water. They measure what's called EC, electroconductivity, which is more a measure of salt in the soil than it is water. But when you can stick your finger down in the soil at the base of the plant, and it feels dry, it's time to water it thoroughly once again. Now, how often that is will depend on how sunny it is, how windy it is, Mm -hmm. and how warm it is. So we unfortunately can't just, you know, put a mark on the calendar and say we're going to water it every fifth day or every seventh day. You will get an idea of how long you can go between waterings. But when you water, do do it very thoroughly. And especially where you're just now bringing them back into bloom, feed about every two weeks with Hastagrow or Medina's Liquid Mm. Fish or one of the Fox Farm products. But feed them regularly. Water them whenever that soil's dry, like half an inch deep, and you're going to be you're going to be the envy of the neighbors because now yours is going to look like those beautiful bits you've been admiring. Okay, you're inspiring. Okay, um, as always, thank you for your good advice. Take care. Well, again, if you looked at the big bed in front of my barn up in the hill country, the years that I don't get to feed in water as often as uh, I would like to, uh, they look just like you're describing. The years when Mother Nature helps out and I have uh, a little more time to do what I should be doing, uh, mine would be the envy of the neighbors if they could see them. So uh, I want to hear I want to hear success stories from you next time around. Okay, thanks again. Take care. Bye-bye. You're welcome, Carol. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. And that goes not just for the new gold, but all of your lantanas. Now, one thing about lantanas, there are two different types. There are the more upright, sort of bushy lantanas that includes uh, the reds, Dallas red, red spread, the yellows, new gold, the confetti. Um, there are a bunch of new varieties out there. The one they call... Uh, Oh, Irene is an especially pretty one. There's another one they call multi-dwarf. There's some incredible 
bushing lantanas, and they should bloom all summer for you. But now there's a second group of lantanas that are what we call trailing lantanas. The two colors are white and sort of an orchid lavender color. These are going to give you some flowers in the summer, but it's a whole, they're derived from a whole different species of lantana, and their big bloom time is spring and fall, and then they have a few flowers through the summer, but you're not going to turn them into a just a show place in July or August. But after your brighter colors fade, when we get into October, November, uh, your trailing forms are still just going to be getting prettier and prettier all the time. So uh, just keep in mind, there's more than one kind of lantana, but feeding and watering is something that they all have in common. Uh, let me get a break in here. Vernon will be up next, and I get to talk to you about the Cedar Eater of Texas. Ah, they just do such good work. And, you know, this has been a great year in the Hill Country with good rains, but uh, I was looking around some areas that uh, without cedar, and, boy, the little ones have tried to come sprouting up. But let me tell you what, once you get rid of that cedar the first time, the way the cedar eater does, it's very, very easy to manage the little stuff that comes back afterwards. Now, if you don't have your big trees uh, down and ground into mulch, well, <laughs> you've just got a bigger job than ever because uh, the mature ash juniper really put on a lot of growth this spring. But it's never too late. The cedar eaters, the machine can take care of even the biggest ash juniper out there. They can cover acres and acres in a single day. Their process is so environmentally friendly. No bulldozing, no burning, just something that can cut the cedar off at ground level, which kills it effectively and grind it into a nice mulch. Now, if you've got cedars up tight around the trees you want to save, your oak your elms, your escarpment cherries, well, Cedar Eater will just send in a hand-clearing crew. They cut those cedars that are up in close proximity to your good trees, drag them out in the open, and that machine will turn them into mulch literally in seconds. It's an amazing process. Cedar Eater's been doing it for many years. Uh, and they, golly, when you think about clearing Cinderas in South Texas, now, unfortunately, that growth comes back, unlike the cedars, but they could do miles. I can't imagine how many miles of Cinderas they could clear in a single day. They also have a machine that can take down big trees that may have died of drought or oak wilt. No danger of spreading oak wilt, but you get those trees down before they fall and can create problems. Lots of services from one great company, the Cedar Eater of Texas. You'll reach them at 210-745-2743. That's two. 210-745-2743 for the Cedar Eater of Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, let's get back to gardening. Uh, next three callers are going to be Vernon and Ronnie and Clint. So let's say good morning to Vernon. What's going on today, sir? Good morning. Morning, sir. I have a question. You hear me? Yes, sir. Just fine. Can you hear me? Just fine. I've got a question about root beer plant. I've got, I don't know what the actual name of it is, but that's, you crunch it, it smells like root beer. Yeah, the common name is Oja Santo. Oja Santo? Yeah. I've had a problem with it. It's, it wants to get too dry and die out on me. i got the thing just about standing in water to keep it alive. Is that because i got all water roots, or should I transplant that to a bigger pot and hey, right now the leaves are it's doing wonderful it's it's sitting under the under a great big oak tree shaded filter sure the sun, sure and well it's doing it loves it oh yeah and it will up until freezing weather when you probably have to protect it but um it you should never leave it standing in water uh but it is what you have to realize is sometimes a plant droops 
when it's not dry. Sometimes it just droops from dry wind. Sometimes it just droops from, you know, very, very bright light. So when you water, always feel the soil first. Now, when you water, there's no such thing as too much water at any one time. You really want to flood it, whether it's in the ground or whether it's in a pot. But then feel and don't water again until that soil is dry, even if the plant looks a little droopy. Now, I don't want to dry out all the way through the pot, but my general rule is if it's droopy in the afternoon, don't worry. If it's still droopy the next morning, then it needs to be watered thoroughly. But uh, uh, again, a lot of people kill plants because they just assume when it droops that it's dry, and many times uh, it's it's another cause. So uh, the Ojasanta should be very easy for you to grow. Uh, like I say, you may need to protect it. It'll take a, a mild winter, but in a really cold winter, you'll have to protect it. Uh, it's an interesting plant. People use those leaves sometimes to bake things in. Uh, you'll read about a tea being made from it, but in general, I don't recommend it for internal combustion. It does it's consumption. Uh, I guess internal consumption could cause internal combustion, but uh, no, internal consumption I don't recommend. But uh, uh, it's used as a flavoring in a lot of different ways, and it's a really, really neat plant. So you've done right keeping it in the shade of that oak tree. And like I say, when you water water it really thoroughly, and you may be watering every three or four days in the summer months, but always feel that soil. Just be sure it's dry on the surface before you water again, and it should be very easy for you to grow. Well, by standing in water, what I'm saying is I've got it in a a pan. It's in a Uh flower pot, but then that flower pot is sitting in a pan, and I usually have water (laughs) standing in the pan. If it's just like half an inch or so, that's not going to be an issue. That water will be gradually drawn up through the pot. But the problem with uh, with staying too wet, the water drives the oxygen out of the soil. And the uh, plant's roots have to have oxygen. It's just like you or me. If somebody stuck here, our head in a bucket of water for 10 minutes, water didn't kill us. The lack of oxygen is what killed us. And yeah. if we have that plant so deep in the water that there's no oxygen in the soil, the roots of the plant will ultimately die and the plant will follow. So uh, a shallow, you know, a shallow maybe half an inch in a shallow saucer of water is fine. Uh, You know, a galvanized bucket with eight inches of water in it is way too much. Okay. And you said, how do you spell that? O-H? H-O, I believe it's H-O-J-A. Oja Santa, S-A-N-T-A. And it's got a much more complicated scientific name, but in this part of the country, uh, you'll hear it called Ojasanta more than you'll call it here, root beer plant, but both of them are good common names, and uh, it's a beautiful plant to grow, and I, I love root beer, so I don't know if anything smells like root beer, and so it's a good plant. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Vernon. Thank you, sir. Uh, Ronnie is up next. Good morning, Ronnie. Good morning, Bob. How are you morning, doing? sir. I'm off to a good start. How about you today? I am, too. I good. I really enjoy your program. I appreciate that. Um, I have a question about American Beautyberry. Okay. I have a cultivar, and I don't remember the cultivar's name. Uh, <clears throat> it looks almost exactly like the native American Beautyberry, but it's mm-hmm. much more vigorous, and it puts on a lot more berries, and that's part of the problem I'm having with it. I've got some old wood on there that um, is fairly long, and the berries have gotten so heavy that it's (laughs) making it fall over on itself. Right. So I was wondering, um, like, after it defoliates and 
in the winter and uh you know it, it goes into hibernation somewhat can i take those old limbs out and still get good production sure year? Yeah, absolutely. You know, as you know, in uh, mid-spring to early summer, you have those little pinkish, tiny little flowers, which is what ultimately forms the berry. Um, if you've got plenty of new growth that you don't have to cut back, um, absolutely, you can cut the old wood out uh, any time you like. Uh, I'm not sure that it's a different cultivar. I think you may just be taking better care of it because, you know, it grows wild all over my ranch, but in my flower beds where I water it and fertilize it, you'd think it was a totally different plant, but it's not. It's just that, like everything else, it responds to good care. Now, one thing that you can do that's not going to cause any problem to the plant, if you have a year when those stems just get so covered with berries that like you say they're just droopy just reach in there and you know take your thumb and rub some of the berries off reduce the weight of it you don't have to let that plant mature every one of those berries and uh you can lighten up the load a little bit so to speak but uh if you want to trim out the old wood and you know force even more new growth uh that's not going to hurt things at all and uh, you're going to find, uh, speaking of, I don't know if you call them cultivars. I think they're just, they're not even a separate species, but maybe a subspecies. There's another one I love that is pure white. It's uh, just, a you know, an ivory white berry. There is another one that's more of a lavender uh, purple than it is that deep orchid purple that our, our native one is. So there are a number of different color variations in it, but on all of the growth is basically the same they're an absolutely incredible plant they want to grow where it's morning sun and afternoon shade or else very bright shade all day long and uh, uh, they're just almost uh, indestructible at at five degrees uh, some of mine froze back uh, this past uh, February when it got so super cold but uh, in my flower beds and around my ranch, they've come back very, very strong. So uh, it's a native plant that I highly recommend to you. But I, I really doubt that yours is a different cultivar. I think you're just taking a really good care of it and it's responding to it. Well, that could be because I just learned that uh, my next-door neighbor behind me that's slightly uphill, they've, uh, they've been watering their lawn almost every day. And they'll... Uh-huh. The water, they either had a broken pipe or something, but it's coming yep. over the fence, and it's right there where that American beauty berry is. I'll bet you you've just identified the, the source of the water and nutrition that are... Uh you know, that's keeping it so pretty. They're they're all basically, if you want the botanical name to look it up, it's Calicarpa Americana, but uh, it is a Texas native, and uh, those other two colors that I recommended are less common, but uh, you occasionally see them in the wild, and uh, you'll occasionally find them in nurseries if you ever want to branch out, as we love to say in the business, and get a different color out there. They're, they're sure outstanding plants to grow. I'll probably do that in Speaking of color, I have a question about your nursery. Um, do you ever get any white Turk's cap in? We do occasionally, uh, and we also get the pink form. The The pink is more common. I'll tell you, the white is not as popular because it doesn't, you know, the red ones, when the flowers fade, they just drop off and uh you know, and that's it, and it puts on more. The white tends to fade to sort of an ugly brown, and the plant is not nearly as good at self-pruning, so to speak. You almost have to get out and deadhead it occasionally to keep it real attractive. So uh, 
uh, when we have all three colors, we probably sell, you know, 20 of the red, 10 of the pink, and one of the white in order, in that order. The pink is popular, but it's very, very vigorous. It's going to get uh, half again as big as the red. And uh, then there's still another variety of Turk's cap they call Big Mama, which is a tropical Turk's cap that unfortunately is day-length sensitive. It doesn't really bloom real well until fall, and then it freezes back. But uh, your good old native Turk's cap, uh, um, yeah, there's a white form, a pink form, and a red form. And the reason the red is uh, much more popular is simply that the white is not as self-cleaning as it might be. That's great. Um, when should I look for a white one if you were going to have one at your nursery? Probably uh, early spring, probably March or April. And I'll talk to our growers. Uh, I've, you know, we've got some uh, wood that we can actually provide them to propagate. We've got a couple of wonderful growers in the area. And, uh, you know, I'll I'll say, uh, hey, I've got this. You all want to propagate it? And they say, well, you think you'll sell it? And I say, yes, I think we'll sell it. So we've gotten them uh, growing a bunch of new things. So I'll try to be sure we get some, uh, you know, white turks hat uh, in on that uh, in on that program for next spring. That sounds great. Thanks a lot for your help. I'm going to take them pink on, uh, as a matter of fact, on Monday because I noticed they didn't have any pink, and uh, and I've just got to see if I can find some white in bloom to take them so I can identify it. But we'll do our best to get some going for you, and uh, look forward to seeing you anytime, Ronnie. All right. Thanks a lot, Bob. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. Bye. All right. Let's get a break done. Then it will be Clint. I get to talk about the Tank Depot and... uh, Again, just like talking about good people with good products. And uh, I think it was a fellow that started Baskin-Robbins Ice Cream made the comment that there's hardly anything out there that someone can't make a little worse and sell a little cheaper. And that's sure true in the tank business. I look around at some of the box stores and places with the tanks sitting out front, and then you go up and take a look at them, and they're made of a non-stable plastic and a very thin wall, and they're simply not going to last the way a quality tank will and the tank depot only deals in quality and yet they have the best prices you're going to find and every size and type and kind of tank you could imagine that's what the tank depot specializes in this really their only business they do have some of the accessories that go along with rainwater catchment the first flush filters and uh, the connectors and even on-demand pumps that you can use to dispense the water but i'll just let you go over and visit with them and learn about all those things Today, you're just going to have to go online to tank-depot, D-E-P-O-T, tank-depot.com. Check out all the tanks that they have. In the rainwater catchment, they've got a huge array of tanks, but they've also got chemical tanks, storage tanks, open-top tanks, bait tanks, transfer tanks. If it's a tank, you're going to find the best quality and the best prices at the Tank Depot. Weekdays, go see them. They're over on Southeast Loop 410, just south of Rigsby Avenue, the Tank Depot. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening, and it's going to be Clint and Sherry and Thomas are my next three callers, and Clint is up first. Good morning, Clint. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing? I'm good, sir. How are you doing this morning? Oh, doing pretty good. I was listening to you on the topic of the hydrogen peroxide. I was wondering if a boost of that for my plant, for all my trees, would help out. 
Well, here's the good and the bad of hydrogen peroxide. Um, the the good is that hydrogen peroxide does what we call flocculating the soil. It reacts uh, in tight soils. It kind of foams up, and it helps to loosen the soils. And uh, that's good for just about anything. The bad is, and this is only for plants, <laughs> but the bad is that hydrogen peroxide is a very, very good disinfectant. We can use it to take care of biofilms and compost tea makers. It's what my dermatologists recommend when I occasionally have uh, get those little skin cancers cut off from too much time in the sun. They've gotten away from uh, recommending alcohol even. Uh, he tells me just clean with hydrogen peroxide. It's the best and safest disinfectant that we have. And unfortunately, hydrogen peroxide will... In, if you use too much of it, uh, it is hard on your soil bacteria and, and fungi both, just like it is uh, good at killing you know, harmful bacteria. You didn't know a good bacterium from a bad one. So I would not overuse it out there. The main place that we use it is when we're planting, and then we'll spray it, you know, we'll dig the hole, then we'll spray the edges of it with hydrogen peroxide because that really loosens the soil up to where the roots can get off to a good start. But it's not something that I would I would ever drench with or anything like that because you may be messing up some of the things. Because remember, the roots of your plants are coated several layers thick with beneficial bacteria and we have many, many different beneficial fungi, including the mycorrhizal fungi, that are in close association with the roots. So um, it, it's just not something that you're going to drench with on a regular basis unless you're fighting a specific problem. Make sense? Oh, definitely, definitely. So just like a one-time treatment wouldn't be any, be any benefits? I can't really imagine where it would be. Now, if you had a plant, uh, you know, say with uh, a rust or something like that that's got those uh, structures that make the uridia spores on the leaves or something like that, you know, you could wipe them down with that. But uh, uh, it's got lots of uses, but not not much in direct application to the plants. Okay. Now, uh, you were talking earlier about killing stuff off of fence lines and stuff. Would spraying diesel on the foliage on the fence lines kill that off, or would I just kill it back? You know, that's a real good question, and I asked Bruce Dooley about that. When he was uh, living on his big place up outside of Comfort, he said if he caught it early in the spring when that tender new growth was coming out, that many times he could kill the entire plant. We were talking mainly about mesquite. He said if you wait until the hotter summer months, he said you'll never kill the whole thing. You'll kill the... uh, You'll kill the foliage, but probably the only way to kill the stump is to actually drench it. So my springs are so busy in the nursery business, I don't get to do much ranching. <laughs> so I have to say I haven't tried spraying it. But Bruce said he got very good foliar control as long as you did it early in the spring when the new growth was just coming out. Early in the spring. Oh, yeah. that back And you get back to me and let me know how it works, because I don't foresee things changing. Much as I might wish for more time for ranching in the spring, uh, it's just not going to happen in today's world. And last question, I'm I'm guessing dog poop is the wrong kind of fertilizer for the yard? You know, yes and no. Um, 
there's really nothing wrong with it now if the dogs are carrying you know parasites anything from uh, the uh, uh, microbial coccidia to various uh, tape you know worm-like things both the annelids around worms not annelids uh, ascaris uh, the the round parasites and the flat you know tapeworms and things like that technically you know you could be spreading some of that around but uh i i wouldn't use it in the vegetable garden but uh, uh you know in the yard i'm pretty much just going to take my hose and and wash it down i certainly don't try to pick it all up and one of the funniest things i have to tell you this happened about a month ago that one of my labs i was over helping my business partner out on her ranch with a couple of things and one of my labs uh squatted and did her business and left a pretty good pile right in the middle of a path that was on the way to the compost pile and i thought well i better go pick that up and uh, about 30 minutes later, when I got around to do it, when I got over there, there was a big cluster of dung beetles on it that were taking care of it very, very quickly for me. And if you, uh, you know, the way what a dung beetle does, and there, there are many different species of dung beetles, and some go after, you know, the excrement from different animals. But they take it and somehow, you know, make it into a perfect little ball they roll it off somewhere they they dig a hole put it in the ground and then lay one of their eggs on top of it uh, to make new little dung beetles so in that fashion it certainly enriches the soil it certainly adds organic material to the soil but uh, I won't say what we commonly refer to the dung beetle's job is, is what kind of job it is. But I can't say it's absolutely wrong because uh, that's one reason I hate using uh, broad-spectrum insect killers and things in the yard because we have things like dung beetles that uh, I don't know any other creature that wants that job. But uh, I know in my own yard, I, I very very rarely have to pick up any dog poop because the dung beetles uh, take it off and bury it for me. So uh, it's just kind of the, it's just so much fun to me when you've got nature in balance, uh, how many fewer problems we have. And I realize that's a lot more in-depth than what you were asking. No, I wouldn't necessarily save it and, you know, use it in that fashion, but uh, I'm where I encounter it and want to get rid of it. I'm just going to kind of dissolve it with the hose. Otherwise, my dung beetle friends are going to take care of it in a day or two, and uh, rarely do I have to do anything else. Well, next time I order beneficials, may I should get some dung beetles. You know, I don't know if you can or not. Uh, there was actually a fellow a researcher, I'm trying to remember his name, he was a really interesting guy uh, up at the University of Texas, and he was also a tremendous geneticist. In fact, he was one of the first people that I learned uh, about gene modification and the problems that it was causing, and uh, Professor Emeritus up there. But he was one of the dung beetle specialists of the country. <laughs> And uh, uh, let's just say there are some branches of science to uh, into which I would not really care to delve too deeply. <laughs> but uh, uh, dung beetles are fascinating things. Research them sometime, and you'll realize they're another wonderful little creature to protect out there. But uh, I'm not going to collect the uh, the dog poop as a fertilizer. But I'm going to let the uh, I'm going to let the the bugs take care of it where they can, and uh, just let it do its own thing, so to speak. Good deal. All right. Well, I appreciate your time as always. It's always good questions you ask about plants, so it's always a pleasure visiting with you. Get out and have a great Sunday.
Thank you. Uh, thank you, sir. All right. Well, it looks like it's turned over to 945. So rather than get behind, let's get a break out of the way. And Sherry and Thomas will be up next. On, we'll be right back after these uh, these messages. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. You know, I've got a weird brain. I'm sure glad I've got it. But when I haven't thought about something in a long time, like maybe several years, if I just let it work on it a couple of minutes, a lot of times it comes up with the answer. And uh, it did during that commercial break. It was Dr. Dick Richardson up at the University of Texas. I have no idea if he's still active. He was uh, already Professor Emeritus a number of years ago when uh, Malcolm Beck introduced me to him. But uh, anyway, he's <laughs> he was a dung beetle king up there as well as uh, a heck of a geneticist so uh anybody remembers dick richardson you know if it's uh i'd love to know if he's still if he's still around and still teaching young minds all right looks like we're going to talk to uh sherry and thomas and sarah and sherry is up first good morning sherry good morning bob good morning i have a couple of quick questions um i planted uh plumbago this spring Okay. And it gets morning to about one o'clock direct sun. Then Very it good. Gets bright light the rest of the mm-hmm. day. Should be but perfect for. Not, but it's not blooming, is it? Because it's a brand new plant. Because uh, I bought I bought the little you know like four inch pots, but they mm-hmm. they're they're huge now, but they're still not putting on but a couple of flowers here and there. Are you fertilizing regularly? Yes, sir. I, about every two to three weeks with Garrett juice uh, and uh, uh, has to grow. Okay, uh, keep that up. Garrett juice really isn't a fertilizer, but has to grow certainly is. It probably is that they are young plants. And uh, one thing now, your plumbago is is has gotten reasonably well established. If they're nice big plants, don't overdo it on the water. Most all plants respond and bloom more if you keep them on the dry side. We don't want to get to the point that they suffer from staying too dry. But uh, plumbago is like many of the salvias, is like, you know, Esperanza and just about everything else. If it's allowed, and especially bougainvilleas, run them a little bit drier and they will bloom much more heavily. It, it somehow, you know, the purpose of flowering is to make seed. And somehow if the plant in its own chemical brain says, uh, I'm a little stressed, I better protect myself by having a bunch of seed out here, run them a little bit drier will many times create uh, more flowers. So give that a try and um, you certainly should have improving flowering uh, as those plants mature more and more. Okay, that's probably the problem is I'm still watering too much. <laughs> you're watering too often. You're not watering too much because you really want to water thoroughly when you water, but you're probably doing it a little bit more often. And the plant's perfectly happy, but it's sitting there saying life is good. Why should I bother to bloom? So put it just under a little stress and it'll get the idea. Okay. And then I also um, I have a pool, and so I'm trying to create you know a tropical feel with plants um, and I lucked out on a Facebook page called uh, San Antonio Gardeners. Uh, Somebody was getting rid of some banana trees, and Uh all I had to do was go dig them up. Um, (laughs) And because I couldn't find any in the nurseries, and you know, and I saw this, and now you know they're about ten feet tall. Um, Right. 
and I've got a couple of babies that have started to come off, uh, and uh, and where I have them I, is in a little area, raised bed by our patio that has a drip irrigation in it. Okay. I was wondering how much water they require if um, I have, an, on the other side of the pool, I don't have anywhere where it will automatically water them. Mm-hmm. Um, could I... Tr- do they need a lot of water? Will they survive over in the other area with, you know, um, if I go away for a week, you know, that's what a I'm week, about. A week is probably not going to hurt them. They won't especially like it. But if they are established, you know, banana palms can take a lot of abuse and still do well. Um, but uh, they, they like to be watered regularly, and when you first transplant them, uh, they, you know, they need regular watering. And a banana palm is just like a bigger palm. If you're digging out little ones, you don't have to get a big root ball, You because when you cut those roots, they're going to die back to that big old kind of club foot on the plant and start all over with new roots. So I wouldn't thin out your existing clump too much uh, because of uh, you know the life cycle, so to speak, of the banana. Banana only a banana grows if it gets like 16 months of constant growth. It will, in effect, flower and put on a little stalk of bananas. But once it's done that, that's all it ever does. It's going to die and rely on those little ones coming up around the base. So don't be taking all the babies somewhere else. But I would let them get up to be at least three to four feet high before you transplant them and. Um, uh, again, the, as long as you get them established, they will certainly tolerate your going out of town for a week. But the ones that get the regular watering are always going to be the bigger and fuller and prettier. To me, one of the most important things on banana palms is to, to plant them where they don't get too much wind. Because I see them some places around the neighborhood where they are so shredded that they just really aren't attractive anymore. And yet I look at them in a... Uh, place like down in that wonderful patio at La Fonda on Maine where they have gorgeous banana trees, but they never get any stormy weather or anything like that in that protected area. So that's where your banana is always going to be prettiest. Okay. So so the big ones that I have now, when they die back in the winter, will not come back? Some of them will, some of them won't. Any of them that were mature enough to make a stalk of bananas, even though they might not have had time to do so, they're not going to come back. But the kind of medium-sized ones, uh, they will come back. And if we get a mild winter to where they don't, the tops really don't freeze back, um, then you may actually have some bananas next year. Okay. All right. Well, then I'll leave what I have alone and see what happens next spring. And if you want to have some fun, if you want to have get something a little different, uh, check around the nurseries. Uh, we've started getting in more of some different. Uh, there's one that's very reddish called the Abyssinian banana, and then there's one they call Rojo that has big uh, red splotches in the leaves. And anyway, there are some ornamental bananas that don't get so big but have more interesting leaves out there. And uh, if you want to get a little variety out in your little backyard tropical paradise, uh, there's some other fun bananas you can grow, too. Okay, so what would you suggest, then, for that other area? Like I said, it's going to get morning till about 1 o'clock direct sun and Mm -hmm. then just bright light the rest of the afternoon. And it's uh, up by closer to the house. 
uh, and I need something because I have uh, my little vegetable garden back there. So I don't mm-hmm. want anything that's going to get huge that would shade my vegetables. Sure. Um, but would would get, you know, anywhere from 8 to 10, 12 feet high. I had mm-hmm. wanted the pygmy palms, but I know they won't grow here. And, well, if you know, if you want a if you want a, a more compact, hardy palm, look at what they call the Mediterranean uh, fan palm, and it's going to be totally cold hardy, and uh, it, yet it rarely gets over six or eight feet tall. But uh, Mediterranean uh, palm is going to be uh, is going to be a good choice where you want a permanent evergreen palm. Now, there are other things you can plant. Uh, there are some of the compact esperanzas that are going to give you huge amount of flowers through the summer and i think that would be enough light for them and uh they're going to stay more you know five six four five six foot high as compared to the old yellow ones which might get 15 feet high but they would be very attractive as tropical plants i think variegated ginger is an absolutely gorgeous plant very tropical look uh very hardy uh most of them came back after our five degree winter so i'd certainly consider variegated ginger uh, is a pretty plant there. There are quite a number of alocasias, A-L-O-C-A-S-I-A. There are the big old standard green ones, both the upright and the spreading, but there are some that have a blackish cast to them. I was just looking at a bunch of those that just came in yesterday. But there, there's some very unusual and beautiful alocasias that could, uh, you know, lend that tropical uh, look to that area there there are really quite a lot of things uh, going to be more foliages than flowers but i would also look at the compact esperance because i think that would be enough light that they could give you some blooms back there as well okay and you said it was Men- uh, mediterranean fan palm yes the mediterranean fan palm uh shamarops humilis if i'm remembering right but you'll find it under the name mediterranean fan palm and uh they make multiple trunks and extremely attractive and good down to 10 degrees. And, Jerry, good luck with it. I've got to go to news here. I appreciate the call. Thank you. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. Back to gardening on a just a nice Sunday morning out there. And uh, hope you're going to get out and enjoy. Hope you're going to spend some time in the garden. If you're planting tomatoes, remember you have got to get those big fruited tomatoes planted. Uh, still got some more time on cherry tomatoes because they don't pay any attention to nighttime temperatures. But as soon as the nighttime temperatures start dropping, your big fruited tomatoes stop setting fruit. So uh, if you think going to fall tomatoes, you better get with it. Let's get back to the phone lines. Looks like we're going to talk to Thomas and Sarah and Mark. Thomas is up first. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh I remember uh, you had Farmer James on. He talked about a uh, a uh, broccoli a variety that he liked a lot. And a I lot would little shoots. Yeah, I'd have to go back and look look for that, Thomas. I make notes of things, but that's one of them that I haven't grown yet, so it's not implanted indelibly in my brain. So um, start with an A. Yeah, and it might have been Acadia. That's that sounds familiar to me, but uh, that was it. That was it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Lucky guess on my part. But when you said A, then the right thing, the right thing, the old computer brought up the right name. Uh, the computer being my brain. Acadia. That's right. That was the one. Okay. Uh, another thing. 
uh, how I hate sensitive is uh, it has to grow and uh, uh, has to uh, the uh, fish, the marina fish, and the uh, seaweed. You know, if I, I wouldn't want it out in a storage shed where it's going to get up to 125 or 30 degrees, but room temperature, not going to be a problem. And uh, I know my has to grow, my liquid fish stay in my greenhouse, and it probably gets close to 100 degrees, uh, you know, on summer days, and it seems to stay fine. But uh, I, I just wouldn't subject it to, uh, you know, 125 degrees or anything like that. Now, once you mix it up, it's best to go ahead and use it uh, simply because once you mix it with water, once you get a lot of oxygen going into it, there can be there can be some things grow that may be a little bit odiferous. So, uh, you know, use your product once you've diluted it with water, but uh, you don't have to keep it in the refrigerator or anything like that. If it's if it's regular ambient temperature, uh, it's going to keep for several years. Well, I have some kind of, uh, inadvertently got in the sun a little bit. And, uh, mm-hmm. Well, there's a real simple test that you can do to see if it's still good. Take the cap off, and the old trick we learned in chemistry in school, don't stick your nose in there and sniff it, but just hold your hand above the bottle and just, you know, wave it back and forth and bring a little bit of it up to your nose. If it stinks, then I probably would replace it. If it just still has that kind of earthy, maybe a little bit of a fishy smell to it, it's just fine. Go right ahead and use it. And if it does stink, I wouldn't necessarily put it on your house plants, but out on the garden or somewhere out where you're not going to be. Uh, uh, that smell, by the way, is called putrescine, which is not a pleasant thing at all. But uh, if it just if it just has that kind of earthy, kind of fishy smell, it's still just fine. Okay, that's good. Another thing, I know you like uh, good country music. Uh, Absolutely. Have you ever heard of a guy named Aaron Lewis? I do not know Aaron Lewis. Well, this is kind of a uh, patriotic type of song. Huh. And there's, there's two versions. One of them's kind of rough, but I think everybody ought to listen to it. And it's called <laughs> Am I the Only One by Aaron Lewis. I tell you what, my engineer, Don Cooper Stevens, this morning, I think he has access to every song that's been sung since the cavemen were singing songs around the campfire. So I'll bet Don's going to look up Aaron Lewis, and uh, we'll learn a little bit more about him. Thomas, thank you for sharing. Okay, I am I the only one. Just check it out. Am I the only one? We'll do it. Thanks so much. Okay, bro. All right. Uh, next up's going to be Sarah. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Bob. Thank you for taking Good. the call. Thank you for calling. Oh, you're welcome. My first question, you know, I had a beautiful dynamite in my front yard. Dynamite crepe myrtle? I noticed the bloom, it was loaded with bloom, and the bloom started to die, and the uh-huh. leaves are turning blue, and the tree looks sickening. Okay, and your your phone is not real good. Um, you're saying that the blooms, as the blooms have faded, the leaves have also gotten a little uh, brown and crispy. How how long um, how long have you had that uh, plant in your landscape? Oh, for many years. But I keep okay. it at a short level. You know, I like to trim and keep it short. 
maybe okay. like eight to nine feet tall, so you get to enjoy the blooms, you know, at an eye level. I don't let it grow too tall. <laughs> That's a good thing to do. You yeah. may still be looking at, you know, a lot of crepe myrtles got a little bit of damage from the cold. They didn't show it during the spring when the weather was mild, but now we've gotten into our typical, you know, really not so good uh, warm, stressful weather, so to speak, and some of the crepe myrtles are showing a little bit more stress than usual. I wouldn't change anything. You know, you're a good gardener. You've done this for years. I would keep fertilizing, keep watering, uh, trim it back when you normally would. I think you're going to find that um, I, this is not a permanent situation. I think probably by next summer it will be back on its feet, assuming we don't have another icebox winter like we had last winter, but uh, I I have an idea that it's just uh, because you're caring for it the same as you always have. I maybe put a little Super Thrive on, I probably put some Has to Grow on, and I continue to give it the good care you normally give it, and I wouldn't worry about it. That's probably the dynamite is a dynamite red rocket or two of, of our best red crepe myrtles we've ever had. And um, I, I think this is a temporary situation. It may not really resolve itself until next summer, but uh, just oh, don't overdo it on the water. Uh, crepe myrtles are one of those things that they, they don't want to get bone dry, but they want the soil to get good and dry between watering. So uh, you uh, you let me know how it does, Reese. All right. I definitely will do that. But also I have another question. Is it safe okay. to keep all your uh, organic products in the garage? I leave the door open during the day so it doesn't get too hot. Well, as long as a raccoon doesn't get in there and decide to chew up your fish emulsion or something like that, generally yeah. speaking, uh, most things uh, will be fine at those temperatures. Now, there's some products like neem oil that naturally only have about a six-month shelf life, no matter what you do to them once they're open. And that's why I always tell people when you open a, a bottle of anything like that, put the date on it so you'll know how old it is. But uh just standard, and you know me, I never use the word normal when I talk about Texas weather, but typical Texas temperatures, your garage is going to be just fine on, on most things. But like I was telling the previous caller, just, uh, you know, once you've diluted them with water, go ahead and use them up. Try, don't try to store them in that form. And, uh, that would be especially true of things like the vinegar orange oil mix we make up because it gets warm. It'll right. blow the cap right off of the bottle. <laughs> but other things, I think you're just fine on the garage. But uh, the, the one other thing that I will tell you, and I have no idea what it is in there that's attractive to them, but uh, the BT, the caterpillar killer insecticide, mm -hmm. possums, for whatever reason, love that. And any time I leave a bottle of BT and forget and leave it out or leave it in the back of my gator or something, I come in the next day and it's just a matter of tooth marks and uh, they've eaten or drunk or whatever they've done to the whole thing. So uh, just be careful. Anything that might be attractive to squirrels or possums or raccoons, <laughs> you, you don't want to open the garage door in the morning and find one of them sitting on the shelf. But, uh, you know, at least 90% of your products, the garage is certainly a fine place for them. Okay. And the other question was vinegar. You know, I've started buying vinegar with 9% acidity. Yes, right. And I find it to be cost-effective and also helpful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's uh, The 9% is great in the garden. Uh, for your personal health, I suggest something like Bragg's apple cider vinegar. But where are you using it for the things we Yeah, for the garden. Um, uh, it's just fine. It does have a shelf life. My... 
impression has been that after a year or two it does seem to uh, lose some of its effectiveness, but uh, uh, it's going to be fine there through, through a good season at least. Oh, thank you so much, Bob. I was so happy I was able to get through to you. Thank you. Happy well, you do the Bye-bye. same, and it's always good to hear your voice. Thank you. Thank <laughs> Goodbye. You. All right, uh, Don, let's get a commercial out of the way, and we'll be back with lots more phone calls. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening, and uh, looks like it's going to be Mark and Regina and William. Mark is up next. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. A couple of quick questions and one comment, if I might. Um, Certainly. So I just moved, moved in between uh, Brenham and Navasota. I have some acreage, uh, both uh, which, which are covered with both native pecan and what appear to be Brazos Valley blackberry. Okay. How, what? What can I put out to get to improve the fruit on both of those things? Uh, the the blackberries put on quite a few berries, but um, they and they're just out in the pasture and they're like I said, they're, it's it's littered, covered with these things. But put very small berries on, and it didn't seem to produce for a very long period of time. Well, you know, there you're always going to have problems in a situation like that because uh, you're going to find a lot of critters like the berries as well as you do. And I know on my own ranch, I've got I don't have the bigger blackberries, but I've got the little dewberries like I harvested with my grandfather as a kid, which are absolutely delicious. But just on the day that it looks like they're about ready. I don't know whether it's the possums or the foxes or whatever come through. So be aware that you may have some competition uh, for for those berries. Now, the same, you know, any good poultry litter fertilizer is going to uh, is going to enhance things a great deal. And I'm I'm very fond of Medina's products. Um, there are some others. Medina's is slightly more expensive because they add humates and a bunch of different uh, things to them there are some that are just plain basic poultry litter that are a little less expensive and uh, they'll certainly you know help you grow things well in an agricultural setting and this is going to be true for the pecans and uh, you know your blackberries dewberries whatever you have the harder thing to control is going to be moisture and over in that area you tend to get a little bit more rain than we do typically in the hill country but uh, the big thing that's going to be holding you back from getting big, gorgeous, juicy berries every year is that Mother Nature may not give them the water they need at the time that they really need it. So um, if you're looking to really turn that into good production, you need to find a way to get a little bit of irrigation to them. And I, I don't know whether that's practical or not. But uh, yeah. those are going to be your two limiting factors, our, our lack of water and, uh, you know, and the competition from other wildlife. But if you're using a product like Medina's or any other good poultry litter, or I should say really any uh, organic based, I mean, uh, Nature's Creation makes a great one based on alfalfa. But all of these things are things that can be used year-round that will not burn if they don't get water. Uh, they don't, you know, don't really help the plants a whole lot until you get some water on them. Uh, but those things are things that are going to uh, very definitely improve the plants improve the number of berries improve the flavor on the berries now here's the other thing that you've got to think about 
is that fertilizer is not going to be exclusive, you know, to the benefit of the trees and the berries. Uh, any weedy growth, or perhaps we should call it native vegetation, if you don't like it, I call it weedy growth. But it's going to yeah. stimulate a lot of things in addition to the pecans and the berries. So this is, it's not a simple thing of do A and all of a sudden B gets to be absolutely wonderful. It's going to bring yeah. along its other challenges, but I do not believe that a person can have too many good pecans or too many good blackberries. And uh, you make a lot of friends, and uh, as long as they come pick their own and not expect you to pick them up for them, uh, then that's all well and good. But uh, does that help? Oh, yeah. So, that, And really, what I, I use Medina product and, and yeah. a, a lot of things you've recommended over the years. But it's just buying the liquid, of course, is fair, not, not economical to put sure. tree to big area. So I was looking for more of a bulk product um well I'll, I'll tell you one i'll tell you one funny quick story and uh Stuart frankie was telling me this at a, at a meeting we both were at uh, last week and he had a grower up in north texas and you've probably heard me talk about how much i like their new liquid fish product and uh this gentleman bought like 260 gallons of it and sprayed a corn crop and he said almost immediately one of the things that he noticed are you familiar with the term bricks b-r-i-x it's the measure of how much sugar is in the in the sap of the plants. He said his bricks level went from like four uh, four up to eight very very quickly, and he said the consequence of that is that at a bricks level of four, his corn always got aphids, which he had to spray for. At a bricks level of eight, the aphids stay away from it, and he said that the uh, the money that he saved on not having to spray the aphids basically made his fertilizer free. So, uh, you know, there there are a lot of things to consider on the economics of agriculture, a lot more than meets the eye. So uh, uh, the one thing I will say for liquids is that they're faster acting, but given time, if you have a dry fertilizer that is fortified, you know, with the uh, with the humates, with the green sand, with all the other things, Stuart, adds to it that I'm not supposed to talk about because they're not on the label. Um, it's it's just as effective. It's just uh, sometimes takes a little bit longer for the microbes to process it and get it to the plants. Well, I will I will make sure and, and, and try that. So um, my own, my one quick comment was uh, moving up here from South Texas. So I, I know dewberries well, and I love them like uh, as as much as you probably do. But there's a lot of a lot of plants on this property that I couldn't identify, and I went and got a I went and found a little app. Uh, and I'm not a techie guy, but I found a little app that is called <laughs> yeah. called Picture Picture This. Uh-huh. And I tell you, it's amazing how well it identifies plants. It just it just blows me away. That's nine dollars I've ever spent. You know, the technology that's out there, um, I don't have that one. I will look at it, but it's just amazing. A totally different subject. But uh, have you ever heard of the app Shazam? You can take that and you get about three bars of any song and you you know you just hold it up to the radio oh and it will tell you who the artist is and what the song is and this goes from <laughs> classical to pop to anything you can name and uh, anyway I just mentioned that that since you're not a techie guy but you love some of the stuff that's out there it's another fun app and uh, if we can get one that's that good and I will check out uh, check this one out and uh, picture this you said is the name of it. Picture this, and it allows you to save the plants into your garden, and it tells you about 
treatment, and it appears to be more of an organic. They recommend more mm-hmm. organics or just natural things than, than all the chemicals. So check it out, yep. and, and uh, maybe maybe your listeners would uh, appreciate it. But, Bob, thank you. You do a wonderful job. Appreciate your show. Let me make one more suggestion, Thomas. After oh, yes, this sir. picture of this identifies it for you, go back and Google that, and just in case that it might be one thing that it didn't get correctly, you, once you have the name, you can go back and reference that, and you can tell in a hurry uh, from the other description that will give you about growth habit flowers and things. You'll be able to tell if that was an accurate identification. So thanks for sharing. Get Good out point. and enjoy Good your point. new property, and uh, I envy your ability to dig a deep hole without a digging bar over there. <laughs> And I thank you, sir. All right, uh, this is Mark, actually. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, let's take one more call here, and that would be Regina. Good morning, Regina. Good morning, Bob. I have a Good question about uh, a plant that got sunburned, uh, maybe even two of them. And I'm wondering, um, you, I might need a tutorial on whether or not this is just better to cut down and let it grow again so it's a see it's um the one that's got the worst uh effect is a um a, a lemon cypress okay and, um the other one is <clears throat> my um Bauhelia, the orchid tree right and right so the the lemon cypress you know when i realized it had spent one too many days out in the direct sun i uh brought it into the shade i treated it with um with super thrive i it's um i let it stay sort of in a semi-sun but Mm -hmm. i completely brought it into the shade now and it's looking so dry and uncolored now that (laughs) i'm i'm wondering do um you have tutored us on um you know the and i can't quite remember now but sometimes best to cut them and then let the Growth hormones just work on getting it reestablished. Uh, it's such a slow grower, it seems, that I'm right. afraid to do that. Right. I, yeah. you know, I probably would just leave it for six months or so and see which portions of it were just damaged to the leaves and if there were portions where there were, you know, actually whole branches were burned to the point that they were killed. And you can't really tell that at this point. So I don't no. think I would prune on it because lemon cypress is another one that, uh, it's just it's got a shape to it and if you do too much pruning it will be a long long time before it gets that kind of conical shape back so at this point i would just you know water fertilize your super thrive is a great idea and uh and let it come out before you think about pruning maybe next spring we can see how badly burned it was and at that point make the determination of uh you know how much to cut back your bohenia uh, orchid tree, if you prefer, um, just let the leaves that are burned drop off, and it'll put on new ones. Uh, it may look a little not too pretty, but we don't look too pretty if we get some burned. And uh, right. but then then everything comes back. Uh, just a couple of things. This is such an excellent question, but a couple of things for everybody else listening. Um, even an oak tree can sunburn if it is moved suddenly from shade to full sun. And so if you have plants that have been in a shadier area and you want to move them out into the sun, you want to do it gradually, just as we humans, even though we shouldn't uh, 
blister our skin too much uh, in the sun. But we, if we want to get a suntan, we don't do it all at once. We uh, gradually let ourselves get accustomed, get our skin get accustomed to more and more sunlight. And your plants are the same way. Now, there are some plants that will never adapt to hot, bright sun. But uh, lemon cypress, bohenias, those will ultimately adapt to it. But you certainly want them to, uh, to get accustomed to it gradually rather than all at once. The second thing is if you're looking at a plant and saying, gosh, I wonder if that plant is about to sunburn, just take your hand and put your palm against the leaf. Feel the temperature of the leaf. So long as that leaf is cool, it's in no danger of burning. But if that leaf starts feeling really hot to the touch, it's getting ready to burn, so you need to get it back into the shade fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, am I correct if lemon cypress is a slow grower? I would call it moderate. Um, it's certainly not as fast growing as some things, but I can tell you a bunch of things that are going to grow a lot more slowly than it is. So I, I would call it a moderate grower. Well, then on a little tangent to that, um, it's still in its original 1.76 pot, and it's sat in my south um chasing south since the day I bought it and it had tolerated some of our hotter days I, I guess um, you know I, and I was watching it I thought but evidently it got away from me here you know with the exposure so I would put on my awning on it <clears throat> and and protect it you know uh, on the back porch but I um, but the point is what I'm wondering is um, does it need like um, a bigger pot at this point Maybe um, next spring, maybe next spring. Okay. You know, you don't go in for surgery when you have the flu. Um, yeah, if, right, you've, right. if you're not feeling good, you want to get good and healthy before you have anything else done. And that lemon cypress needs a chance to kind of get over this uh, sunburn before it goes into a bigger pot. House plants are, yeah, just I'm leave sorry. it right it, where it's in. It's in the shade then. And, and Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. And and, uh, and yeah, you bring it, up one other. Lived there for it. It had you know it had had that slow exposure because I got it in the in the spring and it had slowly you know slowly acclimatized. In fact, I was surprised some days that the sun hadn't just really whacked it. And <laughs> so I, I I guess I got too cavalier about how much sun exposure it was getting. So um, I'm paying and, for it now. Well, <laughs> yeah, think of it as, as a learning experience. Keep in mind that as the angle of the sun changes up until, yeah. you know, the, the longest or, or to, the, to the longest day of the year, that sunlight mm-hmm. becomes more intense. And also keep in mind that the same amount of sun can be more damaging at higher temperatures. Uh, if the outside temperature is, you know, 50 degrees, that plant can tolerate a lot more sun than if the temperature is 95 degrees. So... It's right, it's right. not an exact science, but uh, yeah. let's call it a learning experience. And uh, thank goodness it wasn't a thousand dollar, you know, rare heirloom bonsai or something like that. Right. And uh, you'll you'll do you'll do fine with her, Jane. And your questions are excellent. I appreciate the call. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, Don. I guess we better get a break in, and we'll talk to William when we come back. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. 
All right, back to gardening, and once again, back to the phone lines. Uh, it's going to be Richard and Gerald and Todd in that order. And I'm sorry, it's William, Gerald, and Todd. And uh, William is up first. Good morning, William. Hey, uh, morning. Uh, Good morning, sir. My question is: I've been experimenting with mulch gardening, where you don't uh-huh. till after you get going. Yeah, and I'd like to try it with hay. But I'm mm-hmm. worried about getting contaminated, you know, hay that has 2,4-D or some other nasty chemicals. Are there certified hay growers in our area that I can get some that I know is not going to be contaminated with anything? There are. It's There's not really a certification program. The only thing they certify is weed-free. But uh, there are places and you just have to hope that the grower is honest about it but i'll tell you what a a simple test can be and that is you take a bit of the hay in question and put it in a bucket fill it with water and let it soak overnight and then uh you know take that water and you don't want to do this you know with a with a tree or something like that but find a fairly tender plant like a dandelion or some clover or something, you know, that's a tender plant, pour that water that you soaked your hay in and watch it for 24 hours. If there is uh, uh, pesticide or herbicide residue in the hay, that plant that you put it on is going to fold up and look terrible. If the weed continues to grow and thrive, you're going to know there wasn't any weed killer in the hay. And that's probably, um, you know, one of the safest and easiest things you can do uh, just... um, you know, on a regular basis, uh, wherever you're you're getting your hay, uh, you can you can talk to people. You may have to look a little bit, but there are people that do grow hay totally organically. Generally, they get a little higher price for it. But uh, if you want to be sure, uh, again, you can just kind of do your own uh, little test. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, that's a great suggestion because I've got fruit trees that I want to mulch with hay and then the garden. I just don't like weeding. And then oh. another question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One other thing I will tell you, though, is if you get a bunch of hay, if you get uh, several old bales or, you know, if you get like uh, stable bedding that's uh, had a little bit of cow poop and everything else on it, that's even better. But uh, don't rely that every bale is exactly the same if you got... Ten bales from a grower, let's say, and one bale looks a little different from the other. It may have been cut and baled at a slightly different time, so I'd do a separate test on that bale. I, I sure will. One other last question. So I got uh, all my fruit trees took off great this year, except for one that I planted before Thanksgiving, uh, uh-huh. La Fiencia. And can I do a sick tree treatment on that if it's just... Oh, Absolutely. Looking- yeah, absolutely. A tree doesn't have to be sick to ver- benefit from the sick tree treatment. The sick tree treatment is the best thing you can possibly do for a healthy tree as well. But uh, absolutely, uh, it would it would very much benefit from that. Okay, well, I appreciate it. I didn't think I planted it too deep, but I don't know what, and didn't do anything different than the rest, but it's just looking terrible, so I may try that. Well, give it a try. Above all, you know, check that root flare because sometimes uh, it's a little confusing. Sometimes you'll see some fibrous roots when you haven't really gone down to the root flare. You want to see those first really kind of major roots flaring out. And uh, also, if it's a tree that went through the cold winter, again, we are actually the past two weeks, which has been our hottest weather of the summer, 
we're seeing some damage from the cold show up that didn't show up when the weather was milder, but now that it's really stressful on the plants, we're still seeing some winter damage on some things up here. So it doesn't necessarily mean you've done anything wrong, but the sick tree treatment would very definitely be a right thing to do. All right. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for the call. Uh, Gerald is up next. Good morning, Gerald. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you today? I'm not, not doing bad. That's that's a good thing. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, okay, I, I have uh, a couple of uh, salvia plants that I planted in my front garden. Okay. And, and they're blooming beautifully. The problem is there's animals that are sleeping in the middle of them at night, and the, and the branches. <laughs> okay. And I just wonder what I could do about that. Can I uh, put can I put a post or something in the center and bring it back up, or am I just going to have to live it, live with it like that? Well, you can as long as you know the limbs aren't physically broken. Uh, yes, you can stake them up and they'll be just fine. Now, some of them like Salvia gregii is a woody salvia. And uh, those little limbs can snap, and uh, once it's been broken, it's you know may not do the job to just uh, uh, you know get it back up. But some of your other salvias, say indigo spire or something like that, that basically got bent over, yeah, stand it right back up and support it with something. Um, there are various repellents. Uh, there's sort of a general animal repellent. Uh, there, there are different things. Some of which you spray. Some of which are you know, a a dry material that you can put around to encourage uh, those creatures to go sleep somewhere else. Sometimes it's just a matter of a physical barrier. Sometimes it's a matter of, you know, maybe a few pieces of rebar driven into the ground or something that will make it a less attractive spot for them to sleep. So um, the things, like I say, things that are just bent over, yeah, stake them back up. Things that are broken, uh, probably if you cut off the broken part and fertilize, many of them will come back out. But it would be nice if this weren't an ongoing problem. It would be nice if you could make them go sleep somewhere else. Yeah, I think most of the stems are not broken. They're just laying, they're just flat, you know, down. Yeah, no, just, just straighten them back up. But uh, get some liquid fence or something like that that uh, will make it less attractive to them as a uh, boudoir. Do you have a name for that that I could find? Um. Liquid Fence is a brand name that they make several different repellents, but they all have basically the same ingredients in. Uh, they're going to stink for 24 hours when you first put them out, but uh, look at uh, just the uh, the general repellents from the company called Liquid Fence. That's Those are the ones that are probably going to be most effective. Now, blood meal is actually a good fertilizer, and a lot of critters like possums and raccoons and even armadillos don't like the smell of blood meal. So if you wanted to, you could start with just getting a small bag of blood meal at your nursery. And like I say, it's going to be great fertilizer for your salvias as well. You could just put out some blood meal and see if that does the job. If it doesn't, then look for some of the products from the Liquid Fence Company, and I think they definitely will. Okay, that blood meal, is that like a powder you just sprinkle out? Yeah. It's uh, it's just old dried slaughterhouse blood, but it's full of nitrogen and iron and all sorts of good things. And, yes, you do definitely just sprinkle it around. Uh, you'll have to repeat it probably every six weeks or so. But even with the liquid fence sprays, you are going to have to repeat them periodically as well. 
hopefully whoever's hanging out in your flower bed's going to get the idea pretty quickly to go somewhere else. Yeah, I never see them, but I when I go out there in the daytime to to water them, they're they're, they're you know going all different directions, you know, and I just They've got beautiful blooms on them. I just don't want to. I'm with you 100%. Uh, You can always go out at night with the flashlight, but um, you might not be real pleased with what you find. Thank God we don't have bears and things like that out in the landscapes like uh, you might in Wyoming. But uh, there are a wide range of critters that are out and about at night. It would be interesting to know, but if it were me, I'd probably just put a game camera out there to see what was doing if I wanted to specifically know what the what the offending uh, creature was. Well, if I saw them and I went out there, they'd run off, but then as soon as I went back in the house, they'd come back again. So that's... <laughs> Well, try, start with your blood meal if you like, and then try the liquid fence, and I'll bet you one or the other will keep it out. Um, it is really pretty simple to do in today's world. If you're trying to screen them out of a larger area, uh, there are some really simple, not obtrusive at all, electric fence systems, uh, and it's you know doesn't even involve wire anymore. They make a uh, one of them that I use in my vegetable garden when I'm growing corn and things. They make what looks like just a braided polypropylene rope, but it's got the little uh, very fine wires through it. But obviously, it's very flexible. You just use some of the uh, insulated post. And just literally drape this around. You can get an inexpensive uh, fence charger, either one that plugs in or one that runs on a battery. And um, the creatures will encounter that, and they will depart the area very, very rapidly. And so, uh, you know, if you ever had a whole, a bigger area that you wanted to keep them out of, um, there's some uh, electric fence systems that are relatively inexpensive and extremely effective. But I, I would start with the repellents. Okay, I'll try that. Could I could I ask you one more quick question? Yes, sir. Okay, now I I have a section of my garden in the backyard that had some flowers out there, but when we had that February freeze, they all died, so I ended up having to get rid of them. And I, I'm wondering if you can give me a, a some you know good flowers that have color like blue and red and pink and yellow that don't get you know eight feet tall or anything. Just something maybe get two feet or less. Okay, and is this a, is this a sunny area? It's uh, sunny in the uh, see, it's sunny in the afternoon. Yeah. Okay, so it's pretty hot sun. Uh, look at some of the salvias. Uh, there are some other salvias uh, that will stay low like that. Uh, there are many different forms of lantana, which would be very colorful that would stay to a compact size and bloom all summer. Uh, there's a plant called skullcap. The pink form is one of the hardiest forms, and it's a beautiful, low-growing pink flower that will grow throughout the summer months. Uh, these are all perennials that I'm mentioning. Um, there are some different kufias, uh, C-U-P-H-E-A, especially some of the ones. There's one called a dwarf cigar plant or David Verity kufia. It's another one that stays low, blooms all summer. Um, there are uh, the true shrimp plant, which has sort of a coral-colored flower to it. Uh, blooms all summer. The hummingbirds love it. Uh, definitely it came back even after this super cold winter. I'm just kind of running through some of the beds uh, around that. Uh, there, there's some low things like your blackfoot daisy is a low native plant that blooms white all summer long. Um, yeah, there, there are lots of good perennials out there that would fit in that area very well. Okay, that lantana that you mentioned, is that L-A-N-T-A-N-N-A? 
one N, L-A-N-T-A-N-A. And uh, there are multicolored forms. There's a bright yellow, there's a bright orange, there's a bright red. Uh, there's kind of a cream-colored one. Uh, it's it's one of our real tough, hardy South Texas natives. Okay, that's great. And, and uh, most good nurseries have these? I would certainly hope so. They're sure out there right now. Okay, I appreciate your, your time, uh, Bob. Always, always a pleasure. Call any time, and I look forward to helping you. All right, Don, let's get our last break of the show done here, and uh, we'll come back and talk to Todd, see how many more we have time for. But uh, uh, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. I woke up this morning with a voice in my head Said the fish are jumping, why are you in bed? Said I can't go fishing I gotta work, and if my wife found out, I'd be in for some hurt. Come on, it said, your boss is a louse. Just keep your head down and sneak on out. I tried to resist, I tried to refrain, till that voice got up and it sang. Today is a fishing day. Don't care what my boss or wife might say. Today is a fishing day. Oh, Don, I don't know how you do it. I almost forgot. How could I forget my lucky fishing hat? Got in my truck. My wife saw me leaving. Just my luck. Tried to resist. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, anybody's new to the show, my engineer, Don Cooper Stevens, when he's weekends that he's here, we uh, we get a good fishing song or related song for the last break of the show and that's keeper as a keeper don all right well let's get back to the phone line see if we can get todd and dan and gene in uh good morning todd hey good morning bob morning sir i have a couple of questions quick questions about trees i've I planted a shantung maple uh okay. season before last it struggled the first season kind of shriveled up lost its leaves i think i planted a little too late in the in the spring um okay but it's done it's done well since then looks great this year the the, the issue that i'm wanting to maybe try to address is it's about two inches in diameter at the base uh-huh. and it's got a what appears to be a about a half inch um root encircling the whole base okay um and i was wondering if i should try and address that while the tree's small or do i let that just, no. just go it, it wraps around the whole thing yeah, a, address it uh, as soon as it cools off this fall. Uh, that's not uh, that's small enough that you can do it yourself. On a big tree, it can be like a rubber band. It can build up so much pressure, you have to be super careful in cutting it. But uh, wood chisel, you need to uh, you know remove that from at least halfway around the tree. Okay, I'll uh, I'll wait till it cools off and do that. Second yeah. uh, second question, I bought uh, this. This um, after this freeze, I noticed that my two very large red oaks were uh, in my backyard were kind of struggling. They had started to put on buds, and then we had the the freeze, and then it you yeah. know it didn't happen, and so they started uh, they put in put on leaves a little further down most of the branches. Um, so there's uh-huh. kind of uh, dead branches stuck out. So anyway, um, across one half of the tree, anyway, uh, one of them. But I bought a whole bunch of the sick tree treatment um, 
products, you know, all of the components. Yeah. But these doggone trees are so big that all the drip line are in my neighbor's yards. And yeah. so they kind of take up, you know, I don't, I have, my backyard is entirely just mulch and structures um, and some garden beds. So how, you know, how would I uh, best apply that tree treatment? Just over, just over as much of the root zone as you can. And remember, the sick tree treatment also involves root flare exposure and um, different things. But just apply where you can. Now, I have to tell you that most of those branch tips are dead. They're not going to put on more leaves no matter what you do. But uh, the red oaks, red oaks took a hit. And the sick tree treatment will very definitely help them. But just... Uh, you know, simply apply in the area of the root system you can get to, and that's the best you can do. But make certain that the root flare is exposed, and um, um, just uh, let's hope the summer stays pretty mild. Yeah. Now, would I um, would I would I try and apply? It, so, you know, like I say, the, the the branches extend far out into my neighbor's yard. So, would I just sure. kind of go up as close to the fence as I can, or, or would it be any? Any benefit to apply it up, you know, within 10, 12 feet of the trunk? They, by the way, the, the root flares are very well exposed. These good. These were, uh, it, you know, it would be good anywhere you can do it. Um, okay. Many of these products, the things they do actually create systemic effects in that what you're doing on one part of the root zone will benefit the entire tree, stimulating the production of what we call parenchyma cells and some things like that. So, yes, anywhere all the way from the fence back to within. And keep in mind that most of the liquids that the tree takes up are closer to the trunk and, um, you know, anything you do to enhance uh, the nutrient uptake is going to be beneficial. So just anywhere that anywhere within the root zone, anywhere from the fence all the way back, almost to the trunk of the tree, will benefit from an application of you know all the things that are talked about in there: the lava sand, the cornmeal, all the all the things that constitute the tree, a sick tree treatment. Okay, I'll do that. And should I before I put those items down, should I use hydrogen peroxide uh, to try and no. aerate the soil? No. No, I don't. I don't think that's necessary, and I think it might actually be counterproductive because we certainly don't want to don't want to mess up the soil microbes. Okay, thank you very much, sir. Appreciate it. I certainly do appreciate the call, and uh, you get out and have a good Sunday.